Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Welcome to a special carol edition of Speaking to the Dead. I'm Doug Rooney, lecturer in English Language and Literature at the Capital University of Economics and Business in Beijing. And I'm Will Stafford, postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Philosophy at the Czech Academy of Sciences. So this week, Douglas, we've both brought carols to share with the other. Mm, yes, definitely. A bit like the um, Halloween episode where we share, shared spooky stories. This time we're going to share um, some crackling carol controversies. Oh, well, that's a cracker. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, if you don't mind me going first, I have for you a uh, Filipino carol. Actually, I have two Filipino carols and a copyright controversy. Mm, my favourite type of controversy. So, one of the most uh, popular and famous Christmas carols in the Philippines is Ang Pasco I Samapit. Apologies in the, well, apologies in the past for the pronunciation that's going to go on here. And so this carol is uh, very popular in the Philippines, but there's a controversy about who actually wrote it and what is the original carol. So there's another carol, Cassandra Ning Taana, that was originally composed by two Cebuano musicians, Vincent Ruby and Mariano uh, Vestil. And it has almost exactly the same tune as Ang Pasco I Samapit, and it comes earlier. So there's this controversy about who is the actual author of Ang Pasco I Samapit. Mm. On the one side, there's Ruby and the, uh, Still, who wrote in 1933 this carol that was very popular. Then, years later, in 1938, Josefino Senezal and Levi Salerio come along with a Tagalog song, and it has the same tune. Right. Context for this, 1930s Philippines, this is during what we're still in the American occupation, right? Right. So there's actually there's some language politics going on here. So in the Philippines, there are lots of different languages, lots of local languages. And in 1937, it was decided that the national language would be Tagalog. But this was not an uncontroversial decision, particularly, particularly uh, for Cebuano speakers who made up another sizable language minority. Um, and there was this feeling of one language being picked over the other. Well, so this sounds quite juicy then. So it's a mi minority language produces a carol. Then 1937, the Tagalog is picked as the official language by the Americans or by the Filipinos? No, by a council uh, made up of representatives from all of the regions in the Philippines. Okay, so... Tagalog is decided as a national language. And then the year later, there's this carol in Tagalog, which seems to be plagiarized from the minority language that just got uh, lost its place as an official language. Is that right? Well, it didn't lose its place as an official language, but it wasn't chosen as the national language. Okay. 
But so it's slightly more complicated. So in 1938, the tune is used by Senezal for a marching theme in a movie. Then years later, in the 1950s, lyrics are added by a very famous uh, musician, Levi Solero, in Tagalog, and it becomes a Christmas carol. Oh, so was the original one by the minority group not a Christmas carol? It was a Christmas carol, and in fact, it is still a very popular Christmas carol. So let me see if I've got. So let me see if I've got this straight. So. Christmas Carols produced in 1933, you said? Three. 1933. Yeah. Then 1937, Tagalog is picked as the national language of the Philippines. 1938, the tune seems to have been taken out of this popular Christmas tarot and made into a marching song. And then decades later, it's then rediscovered by this other singer Tagalog words are added to it and it becomes a Christmas carol again. Yes. And now it's, the, the. I mean, we heard them, right? And I encourage anyone who hasn't heard these songs to go to our Twitter where you'll be able to find links to them or just search for them yourself. Very similar tunes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. But it's not known. There's no evidence that Senezel had heard the tune prior he may well have it was a very popular tune but there's no smoking gun uh like him having come into obvious contact yeah but like with with songs it's kind of difficult to have a smoking gun right like unless the guy wrote in his diary listen to an amazing tune might steal it later it's not clear to me (laughs) what what the smoking gun because it's not like it's like a book right so if you could you go oh well the guy has it in his library therefore but like a song, you would imagine it's everywhere, right? Like music is everywhere, especially mm-hmm. at Christmas time. So, it, yeah, I don't know what a smoking gun for music would look like. I mean, I'm not a musicologist. Right. So maybe maybe musicologists <laughs> having a more sophisticated way to do this. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It seems like it's very plausible to me if it was a popular Christmas carol yeah. that you would have heard it. And unfortunately for uh, Ruby, who is the presumably the at least the first person to produce this tune Mm. he kind of has a sad story because he writes this incredibly popular piece of music and and it really a a kind of inspiring story he's someone who started off as a manual laborer and manages to do what he loves and become a musician and someone who writes music but having written this very popular song in the 1950s, he sells the rights to a recording company mm. and they agree to give him both an advance and they promise to give him money for every record sold. They only give him part of that money. Oh. Uh, over 20 years later, in 1976, he sues to say, you owe me royalties. Yeah, yeah. But the case gets dismissed because he can't afford to travel to Manila for the court hearing oh oh dear that's that's quite a sad because it sounds like he has a very good case right at least from the bit you're telling me it sounds like he has a good good chance of of winning if we we go through we'll see that there is a good case because the unfortunately the same year he tries to copyright his song at the national library but they say he can't because it's already in the public domain however three years later he files a case not in the uh, Manila, but in Cebu, 
Now, sadly, he's going to pass away seven years later in 1980s, but his daughter uh, kind of, for his last wish, he asks for her to carry on, and she does. She carries on with the case. And in 1988, almost 10 years after the case is originally filed, the court decides in his favour and that he does receive, well, not him, but he's passed away, but his estate receives the royalties that he's owed for decades ago. So a little bit of a happy, well, not a happy ending for him, but at least there's a resolution in his favour, right? Yes. Um, which doesn't... Yes. Which isn't always a given with the music industry, right? And, and, and since then, posthumously, he's received much more recognition mm. for how important his music was. And these two carols, are they still popular in the Philippines? Uh, yeah, uh, from from what I gather, if you were to actually now be in the Philippines, you would be able to hear kids singing both of these going carols. And is it still an ongoing controversy about? Well, uh, it it seems it is a topic of heated letters to newspapers. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> from what I can gather, so yeah, there there is still some kind of back and forth about uh, whether or not. The, the song was stolen. Well, I feel like that's the true Christmas gift there. It's given generations <laughs> of people something to write to editors about in newspapers. Yeah, the true spirit of Christmas. Yes, which is writing to the editor about an issue that you feel very passionately about. Okay, good. Well, um, I liked a little trip to the Philippines. I think it's a it's it, it's always interesting to get out of the uh, the the West Atlantic bubble when it comes to things like Christmas and culture. Right? Are you ready to to learn about the carols I have picked? Yes. Um, so I decided I would talk about the carol that Classic FM dubs the most popular carol of all time. Ah, Classic FM, the most reliable. Yes, <laughs> the only source I trust. Good King Wenceslas. Wenceslas. Ah. This one is a particularly a gift to you. Uh, well, as Good King Wenceslas was a ruler of uh, Bohemia. He lived in Prague for the real the real person, ah. uh, was someone who, for part of his life at least, lived in Prague. So there's a little Christmas gift to you. Ah, there you go. So Good King Wenceslas, um, if you've ever listened to a, a carol service, at least in uh, the United Kingdom or the English-speaking world, you've probably uh, heard it at some point. Uh, it's it's pretty popular. It's been done numerous and numerous times. So it's all about the story of the carol is good King Wenceslas looks out on Boxing Day and St. Stephen's Day and sees a poor family struggling in the snow and he walks out into the snow uh, and, and gives them food, right? That's the basic story of the carol. So good King Wenceslas was a real man. He was born in round about 907, we think. It's hard to get an exact date, but something like 907, um, in what is now the Czech Republic, but then was uh, the Duchy of Bohemia. Interestingly, mm. he was not a king. He, during his it, lifetime... Is a prince by any chance? Yes, he was a prince and a duke, but during his lifetime, he was never made king. Posthumously, he seems to have been made king, and we'll get to that in a second. But during his life, never a king. So when you picture good King Wenceslas, what age do you picture him as? Oh, good, good 60s, 70s, 80s. Yes, but the real King Wenceslas, or Duke Wenceslas I, died in his mid-20s. Oh. Yeah. So he's just a kid. Yeah. The story behind the real Wenceslas, 
with us is quite interesting. So he's born in the beginning of the 10th century in Bohemia, which is not yet Christian. So his father is not a Christian at all. He's a pagan. But he, is a, as a boy, is sent off um, to be brought up by his grandmother, uh, one Ludmilla, who is a zealous Christian. And being brought up in his grandmother's court, he himself develops her same Christianity. And so when his father dies in 921, uh, when he is about 14, we think, he becomes the Duke of Bohemia. And as soon as he becomes 18, he starts on a mission to Christianize Bohemia. Mm. And that's essentially his life's work, short life, but it's his life's work. So for the next maybe 10 years, less than that, he fights to Christianize Bohemia. And in his own time, he kind of becomes famous as someone who is a fair ruler. So there are a series of rebellions during his reign, and he has all these stories that he will have these powerful nobles in his clutches, but he decides to let them go because of his Christian spirit. At one point, Henry the Fowler, the, uh, the ruler of the German Empire, invades, um, and he decides uh, to, rather than fight them in battle, he'll retreat and, and, and he'll do the Christian thing. But actually, <laughs> as a real person, he's actually a kind of like, not a very effective ruler. So in 935, his brother, the appropriately named Boleslas the Cruel, murders him. So I, I've seen statues of Wenceslas around Prague and of Ludmilla, yes. Uh, but I didn't in the statues, he doesn't look like a kid. Well, Wenceslas becomes really important figure for Bohemia and for the Czech Republic after his death. I see. So there's a kind of uh, legendary status around him rather than a historically uh, informed one. Yes, because his life coincides with several major things happening in Bohemia. One is the Christianization of Bohemia. The second is that part of the world deciding whether it is going to be Orthodox and facing Constantinople or Catholic and mm -hmm. facing Rome. And the third is the consolidation of what is now the Czech Republic under the Dukes of Bohemia in Prague. So prior to this, mm -hmm. uh, it had actually been a very fractious uh, regime. And in the generation prior, it started to coalesce under these Dukes of Bohemia. So we have the three different trends, Christianization, Catholicization, and the consolidation of the Dukes of Bohemia. And because his life happens at this intersection, he becomes a useful figure for future generations to project back on and uh, make up their own stories about his saintliness because he doesn't really seem to have done all that much with his life. And he died tragically. So it's easy to project a saint-like figure on this man who we don't have very many sources about, and he died young and tragic. Right. I suppose if you're not very successful in battle, uh, it's easy to say, well, they were merciful and such because you don't have the odd massacre to counter it. I, I think probably being a ruler around the time that the modern borders or near to the modern borders of the country are set up is a good way to be a very important historical figure, even if you yourself don't really have much to do with it. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I have to stress, I think like why he is useful is because he... He's very Christian and he doesn't do very much. And so for future generations, it's really easy to like make him a saintly figure. 
because he doesn't do anything, right? You can you can make up any story you want about Wenceslas the first, and so he becomes a really really popular saint in Bohemia during during the Middle Ages, a kind of royal saint for the the dukes of Bohemia to be able to like big up their own claims to to closeness to God. And and what about Ludmilla? She sounds like an interesting character, and maybe certainly longer lived. Yeah, definitely. To be honest, I don't really know much about Ludmilla. Um, because as she enters our story, her important walk on part is that she educates Bolus, um, educates uh, Wenceslas, a uh, Duke of Bohemia, and is the reason that he becomes a Christian. So he, she's part of this Christianizing force in, in Bohemia. It's one of those periods when you get ver- murdered viciously quite often if you're a saint. Yes, yes. And if you're not a saint, it was just a, a time popular for <laughs> vicious murders. But the actual Carol isn't written until much later. So the actual carol is not written until the 1850s. Ah, so this is part of the Victorian kind of romanticization of the medieval period then. Yeah, it's also a part of a, a rediscovery of King Wenceslas because he is a very popular saint in the Middle Ages, but when the Reformation comes round and Bohemia is, is a hotbed of Reformation activity, his memory is kind of lost and he's rediscovered in the 19th century when modern nationalism starts to come around. So he's rediscovered as this figure Uh of bohemian medieval identity, separate from Austro-Hungarian or German identity. But the man who writes the, the, the man who writes the carol we know and love was a man called John Mason Neal, who was a Anglican priest uh, living in, uh, living in England. And do you happen to know what the English connection is to Wenceslas? Um, so he's a popular saint in England in the in the Middle Ages, but for John Mason Neal in particular, so John Mason Neal is a character who is involved in the Oxford movement, which is this movement in the 19th century to re-Catholicize the English church, the Church of England. And he he corresponds with John Henry Newman, for instance. And he himself will identify as a Catholic, not a Roman Catholic, but he's very proud of the fact that he is part of the Catholic faith. And so he is writing all these hymns, trying to rediscover old saints and writing these carols as a way to Catholicize the the English church. I see. So this is part of the uh, kind of, well, the Catholicization of the Anglicans, particularly in the UK, where it becomes less austere, you get more music and ritual and more features like that then. Yes, and what's what's interesting is at this the same year he is writing this uh, this carol, he's in a massive legal feud with the Bishop of Chichester over his chapel, his personal chapel at Sackville College being too Catholic. Ah, oh dear. John Mason Neal pays a hundred pound of his own money to do up this this uh, this chapel in a place called Sackville College where he is the warden and then immediately after the Bishop of Chichester comes in and says no no you have to get rid of it all it's far too Catholic it will lead the poor astray <laughs> <laughs> and so they enter into this decades-long legal battle <laughs> with each other. Well I, I like that we have again a legal battle involved with our Carol. Yeah I don't think it's directly linked but I just like the idea that he's, he's <laughs> <laughs> He's in a legal battle with his bishop over the chapel being too Catholic. 
but yeah, it's it's a fun carol, I think, as well, because I don't know if, if you knew this. Um, I, I certainly didn't before I researched this. But Boxing Day, as we call it in the UK, the 26th of December, what is traditionally called St. Stephen's Day, is traditionally not when you go and do post-Christmas buying of cheap things, but is meant to be when you do your giving, your charity works. And so this carol was meant to be performed on St. Stephen's Day in the Church of England um, as, a, as a reminder for people to go out and do, do alms work, which is why Wenceslas in the carol goes out and gives alms to the poor. So it's, it's like a, almost an advertisement for charity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and he is uh, picking this medieval saint because John Mason Neal himself is, is very into the re-Catholicization of the church, and he also is a um, historian. He's a historian of Eastern uh, and, and Catholic medieval Christianity. Speaking of the turn of the first century, so I have for our last carol, possibly the oldest carol, at least the oldest surviving. Uh, so this is Letar Bundus, which is a Latin sequence. Uh, a sequence is just a song that's played during liturgy in the Catholic Church. And it and some of the sequences are for special days. So when I say it's a carol, what I mean is it's a song that one would play at Christmas. I don't know what any better definition of a carol than that. And so I'm going to say this counts as a carol. <laughs> that seems fair enough. The, the, the most interesting feature of this carol, if you listen to it, I mean, it, it's a, a lovely kind of uh, a chant, the kind of thing you expect from a, a, a very early hymn. But what's most interesting about it is that we have this carol at all. So at one point, it was thought that this was written by uh, St. Bernard, who was from around the 1100s and isn't the most interesting saint. He was very pro-Crusade, but he also wrote quite a few surviving hymns. Yes, he was very, very pro-Crusades, wrote lots of hymns, but unlike my saint, was not killed by his brother, so we don't like him. No, in, in fact, he appears to have died of old age, which, uh, you know, really puts you on the dull saint list. <laughs> Put Bernard of Clairvieux on the speaking to the dead dull saint list. Yes. But actually, there's now known to be a manuscript in the British archives that predates Saint Bernard. So it's actually earlier uh, than him, and so can't have been written by him. Now, mm. what's interesting is that this is actually still used. It's still a uh, sequence that the Dominicans use at Christmas. And this is unusual because in the 1570s, or in 1570, Pope Pius V reformed the Roman rites, and he threw out almost all of the sequences except for four. And so almost all of the uh, songs that had been early kind of Christian music get removed from the Roman missals. And so a lot of them stop being copied. We don't have them. Oh, so it's very lucky we have this song then. Yes. And, and in fact, it's, it's almost certainly not the first Christmas song, but it's the first one that we have uh, because in part of this stripping away, 
But the, the Dominicans uh, kept it as one of their sequences. And so this is how it survived through the ages. Oh, good on the Dominicans. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't have it otherwise. There are a few, I mean, dating becomes hard. There are a few, uh, I think, Greek songs that might actually be the earliest surviving Christmas song, but we don't really know. And this one is a contender. Well, I think that's always a problem with religious music, which is, or any music really, but especially religious music, is that it tends to get um, recopied and reused for performance. And so it's very easy for it to lose tributation. Right? I, I know, for instance, even today, people who write hymns for things like the Church of England have problems with their hymns going um, very quickly. They'll, they'll be like, I hear stories of, people who write hymns, going to a church service and opening the hymn book and seeing one of their hymns attributed to Anonymous. Because it's so easy uh-huh. for religious music to be get moved from church to church and like one priest likes it and an organist likes it. And by the time it's went through a couple of hands, you've lost who exactly was meant to have written it in the first place. Yeah. And of course, even though we started this episode talking about a potential case of plagiarism with music, The history of music is that it would be played and other people would learn it from listening. So uh, a lot of these songs, it's very hard. As soon as we go past, you know, the the 1800s, attribution becomes very difficult. What's interesting sometimes is to look at dictionaries of folk songs, because oftentimes you have this very complex history of songs changing a little bit and this the music from one song being given another song's lyrics and then those lyrics going over somewhere else and just these very complex histories that get you the the song you have today with it not being very clear mm. how attribution of authorship would work at all given how many hands it went through to get to us yeah and i i think like it's always a problem um with any text uh, prior to like 1700 we have problems with with lots and lots of text but yeah i think it's especially true for 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 music and uh with that thank you douglas for coming along and we had some fun carols to talk about yeah yeah i like i liked our, our trip we we talked about uh, numerous saints lots of legal battles Lots of Christmas joy as well. Uh, thanks, Will, for sharing your carols. I would like to wish all our listeners a happy holidays and a Merry Christmas. Yes, and if you like this episode, you can follow us on Twitter and now Instagram, which I'll pretend to know what that is, at dead underscore speaking. Yes, and please do rate and review us on iTunes as it helps other people find the show. And we'll see you in the new year.